0: This is the SciDev.net podcast for science news and views on global development. I'm John Escombe. In today's podcast, we look at an alternative approach to the issue of drug abuse and the consequent health risks. Through harm reduction, drug abuse is less likely to lead to diseases, such as HIV or hepatitis C. We know from other parts of the world what can happen when HIV is introduced
1: among populations of people who inject drugs. Very quick increases in HIV prevalence from under 10% to over 40 and sometimes 50% and above
0: in the space of a year or two, as happened in East Asia 15, 20 years ago. We then travelled to Kenya to learn about sand dams and how they're helping nomadic farmers adapt to climate change.
2: We have experienced drought over the last few years. It's hard to plan as the rains are very unpredictable. As you can see, it's a bit green as it rained a few days ago. Nowadays, when it rains, it's very heavy and for a short time.
0: From tiny rainwater harvesting plants to big hydropower structures, we look at the mega dams that are mushrooming all over Africa and discover a hidden threat they bring about. Malaria. And our contention
3: is that you can do more in the location of artificial water bodies than you could do elsewhere. So, and it's important that we do, because, because they're increasing the overall malaria burden. It's important that we think and build into the dam building, planning and management.
0: Finally, we learn about a new digital platform that tracks wildfires in arid regions to help people respond more efficiently to the threat
4: large uh, national parks, uh, there was a, a very big wildfire and this spread completely out of control. And from there, we realized that there was a need to be able to detect when these fires are occurring and start providing early warning and information to people.
0: Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast, where we explore the world of science and international development. HIV and Hepatitis C are among the most common diseases affecting injection drug users, due mostly to the use of unsterile needles. Harm reduction is a movement for social justice aimed at giving a voice to drug users through a series of practical strategies. A successful pilot project in Vancouver, in Canada, seeks to provide a safe space for drug users to inject with clean needles and reduce the risk of contracting diseases. The idea has been praised in North America, but could it be exported in the developing world? Reporter Mira Senthalingam has the story.
5: Globally, 16 million people are estimated to be injection drug users. With their addiction comes an impact on their health, as 3 million of them are currently living with HIV and 10 million with hepatitis C, making injection drug users a key population to reach in terms of public health. The 8th International Aid Society Conference held in Vancouver, Canada this year, highlighted the problem, as the city has long been an epicentre of illicit drug use.
6: Uh, injecting, I started when I was thirteen. Um, I was injecting the MDA. I hung around with the lower film as my brother was older. My brother was a dealer. I lived a uh, you know, life on the edge.
5: Wesley Jarilla, a 53-year-old drug user in Vancouver, where levels of HIV have been estimated to be between 17 and 30 percent among the injection drug-using population particularly in the city's downtown east side. The high level of drug use in the area saw deaths by drug overdose and rates of new infections, such as HIV through sharing needles, rise rapidly. One third of all overdoses in Vancouver occurred in this part of the city at the start of this century. But this kind of situation is seen globally, not just in Vancouver.
1: We know from other parts of the world what can happen when HIV is introduced among populations of people who need drugs.
5: Tim Rhodes, Director of the Centre for Research on Drugs and Health Behaviour at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine.
1: Very quick increases in HIV prevalence from under 10% to over 40 and sometimes 50% and above in the space of a year or two as happened in East Asia 15 20 years ago in Africa you don't you've got pockets of HIV emerging among people who inject drugs in certain places so in East Africa you have pockets of HIV in Tanzania in Mauritius in Kenya these are countries also with quite generalized HIV epidemics HIV in the general population will be a bit, will be over 5% So it's in that context that you're then seeing concentrated epidemics quite recently of HIV outbreak amongst injecting drug users.
5: A long-standing strategy to tackle drug use has been a war on drugs, penalising those taking them and then helping them detox to remove their addiction. But in recent decades, a new approach known as harm reduction has been introduced. This prioritises the health of this marginalised population by helping them inject safely and reduce the harms they face.
1: Harm reduction, first of all, comprises a whole bunch of interventions, a package of interventions, comprising things like needle and syringe exchange, opioid substitution treatment, alongside other initiatives. And it's been promoted quite kind of aggressively by WHO UN and other international agencies over the years as a means of preventing HIV, as well as other infections and harms associated with injecting drug use. So in a country like Kenya, which has seen very recent kind of piloting and national level endorsement of harm reduction ideas, there's kind of a shift going on really. In Tanzania, there was kind of estimates of prevalence of HIV among injecting drug users in the order of 40% or 30%. We've seen Interventions like syringe exchange being introduced since 2013 and opioid substitution treatment also being delivered. So we have a a very strong global evidence base and have had for 20 years plus now in support of harm reduction initiatives.
5: Health officials in Vancouver went one step further in 2003 with the controversial opening of Insight, a supervised drug injection centre or drug consumption room in the heart of the city's east side. The first of its kind in North America.
7: Hi, my name is Darwin Fisher and I'm the manager of Insight, which is Vancouver's supervised injection facility. Supervised injection facilities are well-known in Europe. They're a common part of the healthcare continuum, but they're foreign to the North American mentality. So it was a struggle to try and get a purchase on that within Canada.
5: What's the day-to-day here, then?
7: Generally, we top out at about 600 injections performed in the injection room per day. Those are not 600 individual visitors. Many people will use multiple times per day. That's up to them. But above the injection visits, there's probably an added 300 visits per day. Those can include visits for nursing care, inquiries around detox. You go look in the alleys. That's where the margins are. That's where people die, and that's where people are never seen. So to bring people into the light of health care, social services, that's what we do here. Well,
5: because just looking into the injection room now, so there are, I think, 13 or 12 booths?
7: 13 booths. We say, like, Twelve booths and an extra booth because who's going to want to take booth 13, right? (laughs) And as you can sort of see here, there's a couple of people over by the nursing station talking with a nurse and getting some clean supplies. You notice the room. The lighting is not super heavy. A lot of people compare it to a hair salon more than a clinic with the individual booths and the mirrors. And it's trying to create an environment that people feel comfortable in using in. And if you don't create that, your OD response with your oxygen and your crash kits and everything else like that doesn't get practiced because people don't come in.
5: More than 90 supervised injection centres currently exist worldwide, but all in Western Europe, Australia and Canada. Insight remains the only facility in North America, almost 12 years after its opening, and African and Asian countries are yet to take this measure on board. Strong evidence is being called for to move the mindset of global policymakers towards the benefits of harm reduction measures like supervised injection and away from the ideology of a drug-free world. An evaluation of Insight by British Columbia's Centre for Excellence in HIV-AIDS in 2011 provided just that.
6: My name is Thomas Kerr, and I was the principal investigator of the scientific evaluation of Insight, Vancouver's first supervised injecting facility. Very early on, we were able to detect very significant improvements in public disorder arising from injection drug use, fewer people injecting in public, less discarded syringes on the street, We also saw very large declines in syringe sharing. People who use the site frequently were about 70% less likely to share syringes in or outside of InSight. We also published a paper in The Lancet in 2011 showing that there had been a 35% decline in actual overdose deaths in the community, in the area around Insight compared to the rest of the city which had only 9% decline, which was not significant statistically.
5: What do you think still needs to be done then or what do you now need to assess?
6: We need to move past ideology and embrace the evidence and accept that this is a very successful program that has had no negative benefits and we should really expand it so that it's available to more Canadians uh, and to more people who use drugs internationally. It's really a win win for communities. It makes communities safer and drug users get the help they need.
5: Despite this success, the team believe we've only scratched the surface of tackling the issue, both locally and globally. Supervised injection has so far only been used in the developed world. In the rest of the world, harm reduction as a whole is somewhat new, and policymakers are still investigating its value.
1: I think there's no reason. Theoretically, to see drug consumption rooms or interventions along those lines as being a feasible intervention in any setting, Tim Rhodes. Given the political will and given its appropriateness. Drug consumption rooms, however, we see being delivered in quite few countries which have tended to have historically quite well established harm reduction policies and public health orientated policies around drug use and addiction if you look at East Africa and the situation there in terms of dealing with HIV and growing problems of heroin addiction compared to cities in Canada, for instance, or many of the cities with drug drug consumption rooms in Western Europe, you see a very different picture. That said, and looking at the evidence around drug consumption rooms, why not? I think there's a lot of work to generate sufficient national government and regional government buy-in. and If you look globally, At the amount of money required for HIV prevention among people who inject drugs, according to UN kind of estimates, the kind of investments made internationally are around 7%, under 10% of what is needed. That's globally.
0: The challenges are even kind of harsher developing country contexts. That was Mira senthalingham who travelled to Vancouver to learn more about new harm reduction strategies and how they could be applied to the developing world. Stay with us to learn how nomadic farmers in arid Kenya are adapting to climate change using sand dams. You're listening to the iDev.net podcast, where we put science at the heart of global development. As the weather in the area becomes more erratic, nomadic pastoralists living in the arid regions of Kenya are struggling to cope. Climate change hampers the delicate balance of the seasonal cycle, leaving many of them without water after territorial rains that are quickly washed away. The Isiolo County is a very vulnerable area, an ideal spot to pilot new adaptation technologies that will help marginalised communities cope with a lack of water. One example are sand dams, a simple rainwater harvesting technology that provides clean water for both domestic and farming use. Along with other low-tech strategies, the Isiolo Adaptation project was so successful that it's now being expanded to four other counties, covering 29% of the country. Our reporter Sophie Mbugwa met the farmers at the heart of the project and sent us this report.
8: Pastoralists live mostly in arid and semi-arid areas. Their livelihoods depend on the well-being of their livestock. In these dry and remote areas, water is essential and communities often settle around an oasis or a government-built dam. To survive, they have to move time to time in search of pasture and water. Globally, livestock contributes to food security, nutrition and livelihoods of over 70% of the world's poor. Mate Letilia Lekula, a pastoralist living in Oldo village, 115 kilometers from Isiolo County in Kenya's arid eastern region. He is scooping sand from the lemisha Sandam, named after his village to water his thirsty, impatient goats. In 2011 and 2012, A severe drought affected the entire East African region, resulting to 75% loss of livestock in northern Kenya. He tells me that since then, the area has been receiving unpredictable rainfall making it hard to plan his next
9: move.
2: We have experienced drought over the last few years. It's hard to plan as the rains are very unpredictable. As you can see, it's a bit green as it rained a few days ago. Nowadays, when it rains, it's very heavy and for a short
9: time. In East Africa,
8: porous borders between Kenya, North Uganda, Somalia and Ethiopia often leads to inter-communal conflicts as pastoralists migrate in search of pasture and water. Something Abdimatoya is afraid that if it doesn't rain by October, it might
2: happen. We depend on the livestock for milk. During the water days, the cows don't graze. Hence, we don't milk them since last year. The rain was not enough and the grass is depleting. We are afraid conflict might erupt soon as we are now moving closer to the same grazing fields.
8: The Sandam was built by the Seal Adaptation Fund to help share natural resources, minimize conflict and ensure resilience during drought season. Oldenuro is classified as a water-stressed region with no groundwater potential. But according to Junius Njero, an engineer with the Ministry of Water in the county of Isiolo, the adaptation fund has capitalized on its sandy riverbeds to harvest the flood water it constantly receives from the Nyandaro Mountains, 200 kilometers west
9: of Isiolo. In Ondonjero we have dry riverbeds. So when it rains, water comes from as far as Reykjibia, and this water is also carrying sand. So basically the idea is to block the, the dry riverbed. So that you can retain some water and sand in that area. So once you have stored that water together with the sand, the rate of evaporation goes down and that water stays much longer than when it would have been in open. sand acts as activated carbon. Even in normal water supplies, we use sand for cleaning the water. So you find that this water was a bit muddy when it came around. But after passing through the sand, it is kind of filtered and it is relatively clean but we can't say that it is 100% clean because there are some pathogens that's why we are recommending treatment at household level
8: water constitutes approximately 60 to 70% of an animal's live weight with a sand dam letilia is assured of water availability for his animals and family and therefore improving resilience and enabling
9: children access education.
2: The sand dam has assisted us. There is plenty of water closer to the village. Now we have enough time to buy foods in the market and attend to other chores after watering the cattle. The households and schools are now settled, and the small stocks of animals left at home has
9: enough water.
8: The sundam holds about 50,000 cubic meters of water and is the lifeline to five villages in the area. Njaro says as long as it rains in the upstreams, the sundam will sustainably Hold water.
9: This particular sand dam is lasting more than six months. So at least from one rainy season to another, we expect it to have water throughout the year. The rains are it's very scanty. The only good thing about sand dams is that even if it rains in Raikibia and then we have water flowing in the from upstream, we can still have some water.
8: The sand dam proposed by the communities among eleven others constructed and rehabilitated by the CILO Adaptation Fund. The two-year pilot project was funded by the UK Department for International Development through the International Institute for Environment and Development. With an annual grant of £500,000, it implemented initiatives geared towards water availability, natural resource governance, and livestock disease prevention in Isiolo County.
0: That was Sophie Mbugwa reporting from the Isiolo County in Kenya about a new adaptation programme that uses sand dams to quench the thirst of pastoralists and their animals. Stay with us for a different perspective on dams as a development tool. This time it's about big ones used to produce electric power. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. Big dams are a favourite source of clean energy in the developing world, because despite the high upfront costs, they provide huge economic returns, steady and cheap electricity supply, and they comply with the international request for more renewable energy. They're also a very effective way of tackling energy poverty, a huge issue that holds back development in Africa. But big dams come with controversies over their social and environmental impacts. Big hydropower plants disrupt river flows, altering the local biodiversity and forcing tens of thousands of people to move. Amid the political controversy, scientists are trying to assess how big dams change the life of the communities living in the area, in order to better prepare for future stress. A new study published in the Malaria Journal mapped more than 1,200 dams in Africa and compared the result against areas with a high incidence of malaria. They found that big artificial dams are likely to contribute to the 165 million cases affecting Africa every year, with 78,000 new infections. A small proportion, though one that could be easily avoided, our multimedia producer Lou Del Bello interviewed one of the study's authors.
3: My name is Matthew McCartney, and I'm a researcher with the International Water Management Institute, which does research into water resources management with an emphasis on livelihoods, poverty alleviation, and food security.
10: So, you investigated the link between malaria and the development of big dams in Africa. Uh, Why did you choose to investigate this topic?
3: Okay, we we were interested in this topic because um, there's quite a lot of um, sort of anecdotal evidence and small-scale evidence that large dams cause or add to the malaria burden in in Africa. Um, There's a lot of construction of new dams underway. There's a lot of new dams being planned in Africa at the moment because many governments see dams and water resources management as very important for development and in growing economies. Um, and because of this, we thought it would be interesting to see whether we could determine what the overall impact of dams had been on malaria across the continent.
10: Can you tell us a bit more about your findings and maybe the method that you used?
3: Yeah, so first of all the findings. The study we did was, took, took data from over a thousand dams. Um, Located all across sub Saharan Africa. And we found that from these, in fact, 1,270 odd dams, there was an uh, that were linked to an extra 1.1 million cases of malaria across the subcontinent each year. The method that we used, we looked at dams, where we mapped, basically, we mapped dams locations against incidence of malaria using various data sets. So we had data on the dams themselves, where they were located. We had information on the malaria burden in those regions. We had information on the population um, in those localities. And using all this in combination, we were able to deduce that the dams um, had this increase in in impact of, of malaria incidence and transmission. We also looked at the location of planned dams, so new dams and dams that are planned for the future. And from seventy odd new dams that are, lo- are planned at the moment, we found an extra um, roughly sixty thousand cases of malaria a year. So those were the key findings from the from the project.
10: Is that the case for just artificial dams, or the risk of malaria burden happens near any water basin, natural or artificial?
3: Yeah, so our study was specifically looking at large uh, human-made reservoirs, dams and reservoirs. We were not taking into account the fact that other other, other types of water bodies, but you're absolutely correct, those do have an impact on malaria. Basically, what happens is mosquitoes breed in water. They need water as part of their breeding cycle. And so these water bodies can be anything. They can be both man-made, human-made dams and reservoirs, but also natural um, wetlands, ponds, lakes, etc.
10: Is there an advantage in looking at um, artificial bodies of water rather than maybe a natural one? Can we do more to curb malaria if we look at artificial basins?
3: Yeah, that's we—that's actually why we were interested because with dams, these are artificial bodies of water that they create and our contention is that you can do more in the location of artificial water bodies than you could do elsewhere. So. And it's important that we do because, because they're increasing the overall malaria burden. It's important that we think and build into the dam building, planning and management, these ideas about managing uh, the malaria burden that they cause. And the sorts of things that can be done are what you do in other places anyway, such as rolling out bed nets, impregnated bed nets, um, using insecticides in people's homes, Um, And of course increasing the treatment of malaria itself. These are all interventions that are made Standardly across the sub-saharan Africa to to try and curb malaria But in the in where dams are and reservoirs are other things can be done So for instance, you can modify water levels within a reservoir to dry out the puddles and and the, the shallow area around the shoreline where the mosquitoes are breeding Another thing you could possibly do is introduce fish into reservoirs and so introduce certain fish eat mosquito larvae and if you put these fish in the, in the reservoir that would then hopefully they would eat the larvae and that would again reduce um, mosquito numbers. So these are just a couple of additional things that you could do within a water uh, man-made reservoir.
10: Uh, would you say that it's also a responsibility of the companies to include this malaria control in the planning of, of the future hydropower power plant.
3: Yes, that's exactly what we're arguing, that they should be thinking about this more and considering it more in the development and planning stages of big dams. Um, basically, uh, we would say that the companies, I mean, they're gonna make money from the construction of the dams, and they should be thinking about reinvesting some of the profits they make into more um, strategic Uh, prevention and mitigation planning for malaria.
0: That was Lou Del Bello speaking to Matthew McCartney about the new malaria cases around big artificial dams that are a risk that can be controlled. Stay with us to learn more about a new digital platform aimed at extinguishing the risk of wildfires next in the podcast. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast for science news on the world of global development. Now, Wildfires are part of the natural ecosystem of arid regions and help regulate it. They occur during the dry season in many parts of the world, from the US to South Africa. Here, in particular, about 70% of the land is naturally adapted to fire and needs it to maintain its ecological balance. But fire can be dangerous for humans and for their activities, and needs to be managed. Now a new platform merges data from satellites with crowd-sourced information to direct wildfires and help speed up the response. Lou Del Bello has been learning more.
10: Fire is an ingredient of a healthy natural environment. Each year, wildfires, occurring often spontaneously in the countryside, help rejuvenate the ecosystem plants adapt to a so-called fire regime. They become more resistant to flames and grow back faster after competing species have been destroyed. But for humans, wildfires can be a major threat and with climate change increasing temperatures, they can grow out of control. Lena Amalai is a researcher at the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research in South Africa. With his team, he developed a digital platform to keep dangerous fire events in check. He explained to me the role of good land management.
4: So wildfires is actually a very natural phenomena it uh, it's quite important for certain environments uh, particularly in in South Africa and in certain parts of Africa you require fire as part of the natural ecosystem. However at the same time wildfires are a big risk. Uh, They're a risk to agriculture. They're a risk to human settlements um, and to communities. So in particular, you know, as you have the effects of climate change, for example, what's happening is that there's much more severe, large wildfires, and these are having large impacts on communities. But at the same time, you're getting all of these emissions that come from these large fires. Uh, which then, you know, kind of exacerbate the the problem.
10: With your team, you developed an early warning system that tackles the problem of wildfires. What was the origin of your work, and was there a specific local need that you felt compelled to address?
4: So, so AFIS, which stands for the Advanced Fire Information System, was a tool that was developed really out of out of uh, uh, a natural disaster. So here in South Africa, back in about 2000, in one of our large uh, national parks, uh, there was a a very big wildfire and this spread completely out of control. uh, And we had large areas of the national park that was damaged as well as people that died. And from there we realized that there was a need to be able to detect when these fires are occurring and start providing early warning and information to people uh, so that they can respond to it um, and, and maybe even evacuate uh, when, when required.
10: Could you explain how the system works and how do you collect information from the ground?
4: Essentially, we look at the three aspects of dealing with with these large wildfires. The first part is around prediction. The second part is around detecting and monitoring and alerting. And then the third part is around providing information on post the event. So uh, for prediction, it's how do you look at at weather parameters as well as environmental, like how much of grass uh, or dry vegetation there is. And you put all of that information together and you end up with what's called a fire risk. Uh, With respect to detection, we use a range of information sources, uh, satellites in particular over these very large areas, as well as information from uh, crowdsourcing, for example, people that are able to report the information into the system, or maybe even if there are existing cameras out there that can collect that data.
10: What is the impact that you're hoping to make globally beyond the specific ecosystem of South Africa? Uh,
4: so I believe that we are making a, a big impact. If I just look at the number of people that are using the AFIS service uh, globally, we've, we probably have uh, about 5,000 downloads of the mobile application. Uh, we have a large number of users that come in through the, through the website. Uh, the actual impact that we hope to achieve is number one, being able to reduce the you know the impact of damage from these large wildfires it's impossible to actually stop or eradicate wildfires and I don't think we should try to achieve that it's really about managing it and being proactive with respect to that information you also
10: try to detect the cause of wildfires can your system be used for example to figure out if a patch of land is being illegally cleared
4: uh, yes, so you, you know the You definitely can pick up that in certain areas. uh, You know, you do see these land clearing uh, patterns and and the fires that that break out uh, from that. Uh, So, yes, it can be used for that.
0: Well, that was Lou Del Bello talking to Lee Annamalai about the platform AFIS, which crowdsources information to help protect people against wildfires. Well, that's all for this month from me, John Eskam, and from our team here in London. Stay with us for more news and analysis on the world of science and development. Until next time, it's goodbye from SciDev.net.